Welcome back to Hunter Gathers here at Gonzo Fest at our midpoint, looking at as the poetry slam is coming in to the conversation. We're continuing talking about Hunter, as always, here on the program. I'm Christopher Tidmore, joined by the producer and co-host of this program, the great... Curtis Robinson. Yeah, I love being queued up. And hey, the, the poets have begun, although I, I'm not sure that they would... I asked someone this... And as a technical point, I don't think they would consider it a slam. I think that this is this is an, uh, an engaged reading, and I am shocked by how many people. The people, the last two people who read one was from Florida, one was from New Jersey. So it's become a, a people a, are coming from everywhere from to the. And, this and you know what? You forget that as much as this is the Hunter Thompson thing that Ron Whitehead is is a really known poet, and this is like this, this is a poetry gig. That's sort of an interesting thing to bring up with our special guest. Introduce him. The question is. Would a poetry event be something that drew Hunter Thompson? You were you were too were close to him, so let's. let's well, we should uh, introduce our guest. Yes, Matt Hahn is. Uh, am I pronouncing your name correctly? You got it. Well, I always want to say Han. I don't know why, but I get that a lot. You get that a lot. Sure. Well, well, pronunciation is my my goal in life. <laughs> so he is a returning champion. He he talked to us. I I broke the Hemingway rule and praised the writer to his face. He wrote what I consider to be one of the. Apparently, a poem went over well in our background. If you if you pick that up, but uh, this is the, this is the fun a, of live podcasting. For he me. wrote, yeah, yes, it's been a living uh, technological uh, challenge. So, so he wrote one of the great hunter pieces. I think one of the great interviews of all time for what was then the Atlantic Unbound. You can Google it, and I understand. Uh, first, Matt, welcome, and I understand you. this is your first Gonzo Fest. This is my first Gonzo Fest. Joe made the trip from Richmond, Virginia on Thursday and arrived Thursday night and was here for the whole afternoon yesterday. It was pretty fantastic. I think you guys were, were thinking right in, in showing up here and setting up shop here because I think you found yourself amidst the preeminent Thompson scholars. Well, you know, you know, I, I, I didn't realize this until I got here, and, and you're among us, that there's the twofold thing. Uh, you, those of us who met Hunter and those... Who did not, and their their opportunity is gone. And Aaron, yep. so do you find that that since you're one of the people who met Hunter, that that, that that's like you, you immediately just get Hunter questions, right? I do. I certainly do. What was it like to be there? You know, I, I was there. I was one of the now people who could say that they were there at his place for a whole night, and all sorts of things were offered to me that night, of which I did not partake. I did bring up a. a pint of wild turkey and I did fall off the smoking wagon just to be there I figured if I'm going to fall off the wagon it might as well be here but I got to be there for a night and and soak all of that up and ask my questions and it went well and we stayed in touch afterwards. Do you ever feel like just if they want to know what it was like they could read your damn piece? (laughs) Well I mean and you were smart enough to actually play the game the whole night which is to say not get too toasted not try to keep up with Hunter Thompson as you pointed out in your last interview (laughs) And came out with this great Atlantic piece that really redefined a lot of people, how they thought of not only Hunter, but Al Farm. And that's the point kind of where I wanted to talk to you guys about this. The interesting thing about the Sconzo Fest is there's a lot of referring back to the 96 gathering, which neither of you were at, neither was I. Hunter did bring you back the hat that you're wearing uh, from that. I I find myself... Boy, I tell you what, I've reached that stage of life where I'm talking about my hat a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least I'm talking about a hat Hunter Thompson brought back from 96, which doesn't go over well everywhere. But here, oh my goodness, my hat is... It's aged well. We found out from Jackalope it's worth about $500. Yes, now that that Jackalope tells me it's worth $500, and I should say for the visually impaired in that you're listening to this, it is a University of Kentucky baseball cap. 
I understand that it has the side panels, which are very much coming back. I don't know what side panels are for baseball cap, but I have them, and I am proud. Get the look. I'm not taking it off. I'm going to wear it from now on. I'm going to have it grafted to my head. Yeah. Well, what kind of gets me why I wanted to bring you guys to talk about this is it's very clear that Hunter's life had phases and phases of friends. Didn't mean you ceased to be his friend at some other point, but it it meant that you were different. You knew Hunter at different points. You guys got to know Hunter, you especially, Curtis, at sort of the third act of his life, which is an incredibly productive time. This is the ESPN. This is everything. This is Al Farm. Yeah. A lot of the people here, some knew him from '96, which is around that period, but others are knowing him from the San Francisco period or Margaret, in the case for the New York period. And it, what's it like, sort of being? How shall I put this in this? a different set of Hunter friends, but you're meeting these people who knew someone you loved that closely, and it's kind of like I'm meeting a friend for the first time. I've never talked to you before, but we have all this in common. Well, I, I, keep, I find myself, I keep looking for the through lines. I keep looking for like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean he didn't like shrimp? Mm-hmm. He loved shrimp. He, he lived for shrimp. A shrimp cocktail was ordered immediately upon arrival at anything. Just, just any, any kind of detail that gives me a through line. Of things, you know, and, and one of the things that's been interesting through the panels and other things is his work habits. Because one of the things they were talking about a lot yesterday, uh, some some of it was Margaret Harrell, who was his editor, and other editors. They're like, well, you know, he, he stopped doing multiple drafts. Well, he was a newspaper writer, and newspaper writers don't do too many uh, complete drafts. He edited as he went. I'm too. Yes. And so what I felt like saying right. is, yeah, the page we sent you. Yep. And I was on the other end of some of that. The page yep. we sent you had been through yep. five different things. So, yeah, he didn't want you to, you know, we, we in a room with eight editors, yep. and he sends it. He didn't want to have another conversation with you about the nuance of his, of his adverbs. And uh, He did cut his teeth in a business where you needed to turn in copy that was relatively polished and print ready. You know, as a young airman at Eglin Air Force Base, he was doing it all right he was the base reporter you have to learn to be quick and you when you work in journalism as you have and you you know that a deadline is a deadline you're going live you're going to press he had to have that those kind of chops and and, and hunter one of the things that's a real through line is he was always a deadline junkie i was just you know and he really really was one of the one of the reasons i think that uh to the point that his writing somewhat diminished is that the deadlines diminished. I mean, it was Hunter Thompson. What are you really going to do? And also, the advance money is gone. So you're not going to get that back. So what are you going to do? You're just going to cajole. If he misses the deadline, you're going to put it in the next edition or whatever you're, whatever you're going to do. And then, God help us online, they can just publish it when they get it. So so the quality of the drug went down. The quality of the deadline. It, you know, uh, Derby is so good because he thought he was missing a deadline. The, the ultimate junkie thing, if you're a deadline junkie, he thought he was missing the deadlines, just sent in what he could and took a bath and contemplated his next career, which he knew was not going to be journalism, and and it turned out to be the best thing. I think that is the peak, that's peak deadline uh, uh, junkieism right there. I think you're right. I think you're right. And when, when I talked to him and asked him about the obituary he wrote for Nixon, he said... He was failing. He knew he was failing. He was like, that's it. I'm done. But it was the fear of failure and the deadline that got him fired up to get it done. You, you do such a good – because he started that in, in – uh, he started trying to ride that in, in New Orleans at uh, – uh, Christopher, what's the hotel with the, the, the bar that rotates? Uh, the Montleon. So he was at the Carousel Bar. He was at the – he started there, had no luck. Mm-hmm. 
And that's a literary hotel, man. Even I can ride in that hotel. It's almost like you just sit down and Truman the Capote coast. claimed he was born in the hotel. This is where Faulkner wrote his major stuff. You, you, they've got an entire panel of all the authors who have written books in the hotel. And so, I mean, it's this is like going to the Algonquin Roundtable and saying, I don't know if I'll say it's interesting to say. Yeah. It could be intimidating for any writer to be in within that cradle and feel, all right, I've got a deadline to write. The end chapter on a guy who was my nemesis and really maybe the person who powered all of his anger and got him. And interestingly, that was Nixon's favorite hotel. Oh, no. He, he loved he loved the presidential suite, which used to be the Montleon home. There's literally a house built on top of a skyscraper. And that was his favorite hotel in New Orleans, and he loved. Well, that that's hotel. what it was. He had all he, he had all these friendly ghosts over there, but the ghost of Nixon standing over his shoulder saying, "You know, up yours, Hunter. You you won't you won't get me here. You won't get me this time. Not not on my of, home turf. All kinds of. Oh, ghosts. so now we understand that the the spirit in the sky couldn't yeah, come sure. through. Yeah, because there were you know yeah. there are spirits, there are demons. Yeah. So so but but uh, he he talked about that piece and. That piece has come up here. It's one of those. It's, it's a through line because it gets talked about a lot. I think it was, it was brilliant. And what I really like about it is, he kicked. Everyone kicked Nixon when he was down. Hunter kicked Nixon when he was up. It was down, and he wasn't about to relent when he died. Well, I think he probably smelled the writing on the wall earlier than most because of his political perceptions. He was sharp and on it, and yes, him and Nixon all the way through. I think that it was hard for him to write that piece because of this man who had been his target for so long. Now what am I... Maybe there was some of that in there. Now what am I going to do? Now, one of the things I think was the great revelation of this, for me, I mean, a lot of people talked about Hell's Angels issues. Was, was when Ron White had told us, he said, that the, the crook obituary is the best piece of beat writing that he had ever read. And he identifies that as the best evidence of why Hunter is the inheritor of the Great Beat generation. And I never thought about it that way. But if you read, yep. you really think about the way it's written, my God, it's something um, a, a, a politically charged Kirak could have yep. written. It's yeah. He was very, very proud of it. And, it. and I'm not the only, like when I was there, he had me read it. Stop, slow down, start over, get the cadence right. But I understand that I was not the only person. To have to read this piece in the kitchen, I was called upon to read it at least at least ten or fifteen because it was, you know what, it was a great warm up piece for him. If he, if we were really going to get into the keyboard, uh, uh, it was one of those pieces he could read and it would bring him, you know, like like it was a toning, uh, what what do they, they call the things you had? It was a tuning fork for him, and he he would get in the kitchen and then, then the energy would get up, you know. Right. It was it was that that and uh, some music and I get and then that. Uh, sure. and then you and then you needed to shut up and let let the boy let the boy play. And if you hear applause in the background, folks, that's not because we're doing such a great podcast. It's the poets that are on stage appropriately talking about poetry just down here at the 10th and final Gonzo <laughs> Fest. Okay, I got to ask you guys this. Uh, uh, Mr. Whitehead doth protest too much. Is there anyone, we're going we're to talk in one of our com- upcoming podcasts with the staff that actually put this on, um, Ella Rentacamp and uh, uh, Matt and others. But the fact is, uh, Kent, the fact is that uh, nobody seems to believe this is it. Uh, as much as Ron says, this is it. I'm putting the kibosh. So what do you think? I think that as long as people are having the fun they appear to be having yesterday and today, clearly, and for the appetite for Hunter Thompson and what he stood for and what he wrote about and how he did it in regards to the time, I think that there's, 
I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was another one of these. Oh yeah, he he he. he there's going to be not another one of these. The exact way that certain people are not running for president. Wink, wink. Mm-hmm. Looking over, look looking over, looking over a certain West Virginia senator. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I, I somehow some way. I just wish we had another fear and loathing in the campaign trail 2024 because with Manchin jumping in this race and with Trump and Biden, this would be Hunter Thompson's magnum opus of all time. Absolutely. It would make 72 look mild in comparison. He so, might, he might yeah, have just exploded. He might have, <laughs> might have, might have, might have just, just gone straight into pure energy at that point because I, I think Trump alone, but he would have said, you know, I think, you know we've, as we've discussed before, I just think he would look at Trump and say Wallace 2.0. Yeah, it's you very know. much, which is a point that's been made here at uh, Gonzo Fest. It's interesting to watch, by the way, the dichotomies, because let's face it, there are two ages here, and they're, uh, we're kind of in the middle. We're about <laughs> about 50. They're a little bit older, generally, than us gentlemen, I think it's a good yeah, thing to say. You guys are the gateway generation yeah. here. Says, Born but, in 71. Yeah, I'm 74. He says, you got, you got the older generation... And then you've got the Gen Zers. There's not a lot of millennials here, to be honest with you. It's very few. A lot of Gen Zers. A lot of early 20s kind of kids that are just inspired by Hunter Thompson. And the reason I say that is because there was a, a, one of the panels, I don't know if you guys heard it, was asked, but Curtis and I were, were standing in the back, and he says, what would drive Hunter Thompson crazy? And everybody brought up Trump. And he would have. You have to read about Wallace. He brought up this and brought up... And finally, somebody said, whoa, culture. And he says, bing, bing. And it's, it kind of explains the thing that I wanted to ask you two about because you both encountered it. Hunter isn't this left-wing or right-wing guy. You went in the middle of the night and shooting guns with him in your article. You did it all the time. Yep. He's... he's Politically incorrect, he's this. He's not somebody you can put in a box. And a lot of the Gen Zers are just sort of like recoiling, yep. and they're saying, "I'm thinking to myself, have you read the books?" I mean, it's like, yeah. come yes, on. He's been <laughs> described on the podcast uh, from from this event. He's been described. Well, he's a bit of a gun nut. I'm like, I don't a know bit. about a nut. I, you know, an uh, uh, enthusiast. A I would say a, gun, a, a gun oh, enthusiast. Yeah. And a, Absolutely. But this, but, you, but you do have one of the books he he uh, uh, autographed with a bullet. I have a couple of them. I brought some back east for my friends, and he signed and inscribed each each one of them. One was a drummer in a Do rock band. Do those friends come over and like cut your lawn and, and <laughs> offer you the use of their some car? Some I haven't seen in a few years. Well, um, you should call them and say your lawn needs mowed, and yep. uh, also you wouldn't mind someone yep. picking up the mortgage a couple times this year. And it's, uh, Do you still have that book? <laughs> I think I, they all still have the books. I would, I would point out, because we, we had Jackalope on, and, and we asked him what the most valuable thing. Well, Hunter's guns, followed by his bullet, his shells, followed by his signed books. You got all three. You got <laughs> so yep. it's, yeah. One with a hole. One with a bullet hole in it. Oh, you, was, you know, you know, Jack Loop's one of the, the the collectors. He's a he's a Thompson collector. Dude. Okay. And I thought for sure he would say, you know, the the Stedman, blah 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 blah. No, it was guns. It was. He's guns. got Hunter's guns. He has a couple guns, and uh, but I would ask him that what 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 really cranks his tractor. It, it's guns. Yeah. That that night that I was there, and you were there as well, the whole interview went on. At the end of it, he's like, "Let's shoot some guns," and he reaches right off his right hand, right his right knee, and out comes the forty-five. That's what we shot the books with. I don't know if that's the gun, but it was right there by his knee. I just think it was interesting. By the whole time the interview, he was just that gun was within his easy hands reach at the all at all times. I eventually found it very comforting that we were armed to the teeth. At all times in it the house. It took a while to get used to it. Yeah. 
But I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up around guns. And, and here's the thing. He could be deceptive. Uh, he was very careful with guns. He, you, you could see his demeanor would change. He was careful. Now, people would say, you know, he was still drunk and on drugs. I'm like, yeah, I... I drunk. It's a very a, sobering uh, thing to hold a gun of any caliber, like in the in the in the passive power that's there. And the fact I could totally see him just getting very serious and very, very sober we, when you're did, holding did, something did, like they, that. They did, they did, we, you know, or or we would have shot more people than Deborah that one time. Were you there? I was not, but I, I was I was living in Colorado at the time. I got a message. Uh, uh, I'm on machine. Remember when we used to get the answering machine messages? Uh, I've received several. I have not uh, saved them, but I received several and, messages uh, on my machine. It was from, from, from yeah. one of the someone in the community said, uh, "Don't talk to media. Don't talk to anybody." Hunter shot Deborah, and then he then it was went to like, I'm okay. Like, and I have to ex- I have to explain this because not everybody, even Hunter fans, Context. Ca- understand. Who and how critical Deborah was to everything Deborah that Fuller, happened. Long, 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 long time assistant. Uh, you know, she goddess, had the planes court chamberlain, Madame Pompadour, amazing. a whole bunch. And what happened? This is our story, and I'm still sticking with it. I just see no reason to change it. Is there are bears in Colorado? Hunter lived in a rural area, and one of the ways you 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 encourage bears not to be in your driveway is you shoot in front of them. Mm-hmm. You don't shoot a bear, and you wouldn't shoot a bear with a 12-gauge shotgun. I mean, he had he had guns that would kill a bear. Yep. So he fired the shotgun to scatter and, and, and convince the bear to get out of there before there was real trouble. And a couple... Pellets. Pellets. We'll call them pellets, not bullets. Pellets. Unlike the Associated Press, we know the difference. And uh, a couple pellets that did ricochet up. As he fired, she stepped into the doorway, and a couple pellets did hit her butt... It's hard to get that into a headline. Hunter Thompson shoots assistant right. is going to move product. That's clickbait. That's called <laughs> that's, clickbait. That's clickbait, baby. And, Listen, uh, but uh, anyway, we 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 somewhat digress into that. But, but I just want to say I I don't know where Deborah is. I think she's. I hope for the best for her. I hope she's great. I think she ran that whole operation there. She definitely prepped me for going out there. She said things like, "Let me tell you something. Too many journalists have gone out there on assignment." And agreed to go drink for drink or start to push the pace, which put Hunter into overdrive mode. And too many journalists, she said, she's seen leave without a story as a result. She, so she's like, word to the wise, don't be like that. I was like, done. And I was a good boy. All kinds of things were offered, but I was like, I'm 26. This is my first freelance gig. I'm not going to like roll around with that stuff. Too too anxious to, to, to do that. Well, you, dr- you did drink all the wild turkey inside, though. We might have gotten through that pint, but, you know, I wasn't driving very far. Pint, as we call him, a traveler. See, he was flapping as he was grabbing a bottle of Fernet off the top of the fridge when I was there. Yeah. This is him waking up. This is him starting his day at 8 p.m., yeah, and I great. got there at 7. Your, your, your timing was great. Your demeanor was great. He came you, downstairs you know. like he had, he was showered and all, but he was not. He was rolling on maybe two of eight cylinders. And it was really wild to see the night go on and to see him kind of come to life and start firing on there's all a, eight there, around one in the morning. Yeah, there's a phrase called third gear hunter. Yeah. <laughs> and that third gear hunter was always like, uh, yep. uh, wow, wow. Right. So some of, the scholars, some of the scholars that have, did not know Hunter that we've had here on the podcast but who studied Hunter said an interesting viewpoint. It says, why do academic historians, English departments not 
get Hunter and said, well, he's night people, they're day people, journalists are, you guys lived with Hunter, I mean, my God, Curtis, you're at Elf Farm, you would, you would regularly get there at 10 o'clock at night and spend most of the night talking to Hunter, you were doing the art, Matt, yep, how is that night people a definition of Hunter, not just with his attitudes, but with his worldview? What, how did I see him as a night person? Just how do you react to that, as opposed to why people don't who don't get hunter don't get night people? I've always taken naturally to night people. I think they know that they're awake when everyone else is asleep, and that's when like certain things happen. They're just not going to happen in the daylight hours. People are more truthful with each other, or there's this feeling of intimacy and shared like maybe almost like we're doing something that's a little a little naughty, but definitely outside the realm of the norm. I've always been attracted to that. I used to be a night person. It's been a long time. But I was that person who wanted to stay up all night and sleep till 10 a.m. and roll out of bed. I don't know about you. I'm sure you were definitely among the nocturnals at that point when you were out there. Oh, yeah. I just woke up about 30 minutes ago. What is it, 2 in the afternoon? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I understand that perfectly. And when you, when, you, when you were in Hunter World, one of the things that you realized is that it was populated by other night people. Uh, he lived down Valley from Aspen. So a lot of, uh, regulars, people who would come to the kitchen on a regular basis would normally come like after dinner, uh, after the kids were in bed, uh, after the bars had closed and, you know, particularly during like ski seasons, you, you would have, uh, you know, we would get to be around midnight and you would have an influx of people. And that was a great time of day for him to have an influx of people for two reasons. One, uh, he had, he had been up since eight and was hitting third gear. And the other one was what rider doesn't like a great excuse to procrastinate, you know, and, and he, get oh, any work oh, done here. Possibly do anything, yeah, possibly. Uh, so when you say there was an influx, maybe around midnight on a given night, how many people could be there in the congregated around the kitchen season? You, you, you might have, uh, 10, 15 people. It was, it was a very salon kind of, kind of thing. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, really a raucous dance party kind of, but it was a salon. People would come down, and of course, you know, friends. Boy, one of the great dilemmas was that uh, if people knew you knew Hunter, they would start leaning on you to go meet Hunter, and then now, now you've got trouble because there was a big sign. You probably saw it on the refrigerator. Friends of friends or something, was it something guest like that. Of guests cannot bring guests. Perfect. Some of the great tragedies of our farm. We're like, all right. Who brought them? Well, I brought this person, and that person brought them. It's like, no, this is like the mafia. You bring them, you, they're your responsibility. And I, why not? There were people who'd be like, let's go out there. I'm like, have you lost your mind? He's like, you know, and I always just loved it. My favorite, uh, one of my favorite stories is we used to uh, read the Bible. Hunter considered the Bible a great piece of literature, and he liked it, and I liked it. I, uh, I, I think I can guess the chapter in particular that he liked so much. Yes, but 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 I will I will caution you to pronounce to pronounce it correctly, because if if you say if you put the S on the end of Revelation, you got demerits. Yes. He would roll his eyes. Oh. Oh, please. You're casual about yep. uh, a divinely inspired work, and as he would say, aren't they all? Uh, <laughs> the, but but. Uh, uh, so, you know, you would see someone coming out to the famous writer's house, like, oh, my God, what's it going to be like? And I don't, they be, it won't be what you expect. And they're like, yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. I don't know what they expected. But to walk in on a Bible reading at 2 a.m. with a bunch of alcoholics taking it seriously, right. you know, and, and, and my insisting that 1 Timothy 5.23 is the best verse ever. Right. And they're right. like, 
And, you know, and I, I have a certain southern accent. They're like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. It just gave me quite a visual picture of somebody who's like realizes they might be taking their life in their hands by going up to, to, to the farm after all they've heard and how dangerous it could be to walk in the door and hear people read from the book of Ezekiel. Not the image the kids have of Hunter Thompson. Right. And, and, and 30 minutes later shooting, uh, uh, blowing up, Propane, propane cans with shotguns is like, I don't know what you expected, but you, know, you bought the ticket, my friend. Get ready for the ride. You're in. And I'm going to point out, as has been pointed out, Hunter had many friends, many uh, things, but who did he relate to best? Journalists. Because A, they were not awed as much as other people, because we meet famous people all the time, but B, he kind of, while he never, he was clear never to call himself a reporter, he definitely called himself a journalist, and journalists were sort of his people. Can you get that? Well, journalists aren't that odd, but if you're a journalist and you spend time with Hunter, I can now, the most I can do is not bring it up in the first seven minutes. I made it seven minutes once without bringing it up to another journalist. I, I, I worked with Hunter Thompson. Nope. What'd, yeah. you, what'd you do in the 90s? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I admire restraint. Usually, having watched you, you, you do, it's, it's usually two minutes, 32 seconds. That, so. That's my average answer. But, but, it's, but you went, you, here, here's the great advantage you had. You were, you were a freelancer. You were going on an assignment versus working. And so, so you, were, you were your own thing. You were self-contained. And also, you were young enough to say, yeah, I'm odd. So what? Traveling light. I have these questions. Exactly. I have these questions. Many of them were softball questions. But I think that he liked having a kid there who did not measure up. I didn't have the ego. I didn't bring that ego to the table. I I think that's why the Atlantic kind of let me throw my name into the hat when it came time for... I made this pitch. I met this woman who was the managing editor at the magazine, and she said, we want to... Monday, she got in touch with me. We would exchange cards. We think we want to try and do an interview with him. It'll probably just be a fax. Or a phone, but he's really tough to understand on the phone. But, you know, like, if you want to get your name in the hat, do it. I think that there were others who had, they were considering. I was unproven, unknown, not laden with all the ego. I was just a kid, you know. They're like, just send him out there. He seems to know his stuff. So they paid me like 500 bucks, covered my rental car in my hotel, when I probably would have done, done it on my own dime, and happily. That interview, and that's one of the reasons the interview went so well. He, he he gave he gave it the most straightforward one of the most straightforward on the record answers about the Kennedy assassination I've ever heard, and you asked the great question, them, them? <laughs> what who would them be? Elaborate. And then uh, and then uh, uh, it wasn't just that it was it was some other things, and he he would actually say when you would ask follow up questions, I walked into that, uh, and it was it, it was great for that reason, and I, I make it's it's required reading as far as I'm concerned. When you when you go around here though, uh, you that, that let me let me let me say right. it because that's I think you're just hitting on something. It's what is a misperception that you've heard of somebody who studied Hunter but never met him that you might have heard here that was well-meaning that was that made intellectual sense but it didn't gel. Is there something you heard, either one of you? Something that I've heard that I don't believe is to be true, or, or that's not to be really true, or overblown, or hey, you may not have really understood this about Hunter. He was actually this way that you've heard here at the 10th annual Gonzo Fest by people who have literally, arguably, read Hunter more 
closely than even you guys have at times because this is their academic or personal life. Probably, yeah. Well, I've already told you mine. Mine, mine is the idea that that uh, the the hint. The, the whiff of that he lowered his craft and didn't write as many drafts that of course you know that was that was rankling to me because I'm like no you, you just didn't do it with you <laughs> or the person who said to me uh, when I said well Hunter you know didn't always want attention and I, I, I started what <laughs> huh? okay I think that there was a people thought that he had this volcanic tremendous temper and I've I've heard about it. I've seen some YouTubes where he's kicked the director out, and, and he was completely a southern gentleman with me. I was a little bit concerned going out there. I was like, I don't know how this night is going to end. I don't know what I'm getting into. I've got my camera. I've got my tape recorder. I've checked it four times. The batteries are good. I'm bracing myself with a drink at the Woody Creek Tavern down the hill. I'm like, all right, I'm going in. And he was, he was so he was a sweetheart of a guy to me. Like, he was just very much a, a southern gentleman. What do you need? Are you doing okay? How's everything going? He was just, I had a wonderful time. I was there. I, I had a bit of that. I, I, I was spared, mostly because of Deborah, I think. Uh, she, you know, God bless her. I, and that may be one of our common denominators is, is Deborah gave us advice, and we took it. We were smart enough to, to listen to her. To the Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes, it's a, sit over there. Yes, I will. Mm-hmm. Yes, I will. That deserves a panel discussion on Deborah alone. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Somebody, please, if you know where she is, get in touch with us and let I us know. I do know where she's she okay. is, but, and but, send but her, if she's send listening her to this right now, she's sitting there thinking, is Curtis going to tell them? I'm like, no, no. But if uh, if I meet any resistance to the next year's panel, then, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give the uh, latitude and longitude. That'll fix her. Deborah, I hope to see you here next year. I'll just say, oh, if you are listening one. to this, this is the last one. I this hope is, you're doing great. Yeah, I, um, this is the quote unquote last Gonzo Fest. We will see about that. You put Speaking air of, quotes. You put air, finger I put, quotes. I put finger quotes. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, at least uh, you're one of the people who got in. You, you got into it, right? <laughs> yeah, Did, uh, I'd love to. If there is, let's just say there is one. I'd love to come down, back and, be, and participate and be a part of it. I think that'd be wonderful. Well, on that note, we're going to call it an episode. As always, have a safe drive back to. Uh, to Richmond, Virginia. Thank you. And I just want to say, I think it's wonderful what you guys are doing. And it's, I've been listening to you guys as you've been progressing. And now that you're, what, is this 54 around that time? You guys are doing great. You're, you're, you got it down. You, it, and it's wonderful that you came all the way out here. I think that you were in the right place to talk to the right people for this podcast. And what a big a group of authorities on Hunter and his work. I feel like, uh, uh, I was telling people, I feel, I feel like my Baptist minister back home must have felt when he went to the Baptist convention. Oh, I'm surrounded by believers for a change. True believers. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, folks, we'll see you in the next episode of Hunter Gatherers coming live from Gonzo Vest number 10 in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, the Southern gentleman hit the highway and gave us stories we could share. Crooked schemes and shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we were there.